Hi. The other day, I came across this experiment where scientists get two monkeys to do the exact same task, but they give them unequal pay. The work they give them is to pass a rock through a hole in their cage, and the pay is food. It's just that one monkey gets paid in cucumbers, while the other monkey is paid in grapes. Maybe you prefer cucumbers, but just imagine you're a monkey, just for a second. The monkey paid in cucumbers goes first, and initially, she seems quite happy with her wages. But once she sees what her colleague is getting paid, she cannot unsee it. Here's a clip. Let's take a look. Here comes that cucumber. And then the second monkey passes its rock. But she gets a juicy grape. First monkey sees it, passes another rock. But again comes the cucumber. And now see what happens. There we go. Not very happy. Second monkey gives another rock, gets another grape. This monkey's testing the rock out to make sure it's giving the real thing. And surely if it gives the real thing, it deserves a real reward. That's oh, cucumber again. There we go. Still not happy. And there's another grape. My first takeaway here is, Perhaps this is why the monkeys snatch your food in Bukit Kiara. They've been out there all day. They don't see how it's fair that only you get a snack. But secondly, and more importantly, this experiment shows us that there's something very primal about anger at injustice. When life goes one way for one person, but another way for another, without explanation, and sometimes without merit, or when somebody wrongs or takes from another without consequence, we feel it deeply. Children show us this too. My own personal pair of monkeys who are aged eight and four, they have this incredibly fine-tuned sense of fairness. Did you know that children can detect differences between the surface area of their respective snacks to within a millimeter from a mile away? whilst blindfolded. It's like some kind of echolocation. When children are small, we teach them some basic words that are fundamental to all human relationships and also to our relationship with God as well. We teach them words like please, thanks, and sorry. But there's another word which is equally basic, but which we don't have to work half as hard to teach them. And that's the word, hey. Hey, that's not fair. Hey, that's not right. Hey, you can't do that. Hey, that guy, he stole my grape. And as adults, we come to know that, hey, still more deeply, still more viscerally. We know that justice matters and that injustice stings. In fact, injustice can burden us for years. It can skew the whole direction of a whole season in our lives. Maybe you're hearing this today and you're living with some kind of injustice. You feel betrayed by a family member or a work colleague. Maybe somebody's unjust gain has been your loss. Maybe you've taken the blame for what somebody else did, or perhaps you've even been silenced in some way so that your side of the story cannot be heard. Or perhaps it's not something personal, but you Look at the injustice or the corruption of your city, your nation, this world, 
with this mixture of outrage and despair. You sometimes lay awake at night, going over things. And when you wake in the morning, you're angry. Isn't that what anger at injustice can be like? They, it makes us mad at others, mad at the world, but also sometimes mad at God. Well, this is the second installment of a two-part series on the Psalms called Mad at God. Last week, Alvin looked at the way Psalm 22 speaks into how we respond honestly and faithfully when we feel abandoned by God. And today, we're turning to Psalm 10 to explore how we respond to injustice. And what I really want to talk to you about today is how to get angry. And I know some of you are already thinking, Mark, this, this is not something I need your help with. Getting angry is something I can do all by myself. Thank you very much. Can you please tell me how to not get angry instead? But that's precisely why we need to talk about it. Because we do get angry. And so we should talk about how to get angry, how to respond when we do. And yes, there really are forms of anger that damage ourselves and the people around us. And Jesus has some radical proposals for uprooting that sort of anger within us. But what he never calls us to do is to pretend that anger isn't there or that it doesn't matter. Throughout the Bible, God shows us that the way to get angry is to come before him and to be brutally honest in prayer. Plus, not all anger in the Bible is created equal. There is a kind of anger that is kindled within us as we discover more of God and his loving purpose for every human being. Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, famously prayed in 1947, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. For some of us today, learning how to be angry is to step into God's heart for his world and the need of that world to which we can so often become numbed in order to reconnect with it and in order to respond to it. So let's read Psalm 10 together. Let's feel the anger and let's see where this goes. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked persecute the poor. Let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of their heart. Those greedy for gain curse and renounce the Lord. In the pride of their countenance, the wicked say, God will not seek it out. All their thoughts are, there is no God. Their ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of their sight. As for their foes, they scoff at them. They think in their heart, we shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, we shall not meet adversity. Their mouths are filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under their tongues are mischief and iniquity. They sit in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, they murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion in its covert. They lurk that they may seize the poor, and they seize the poor and drag them off in their net. 
They stoop, they crouch, and the helpless fall by their might. They think in their heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Rise up, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the oppressed. Why do the wicked renounce God and say in their hearts, you will not call us to account? But you do see, indeed, you note trouble and grief, that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoers. Seek out their wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations shall perish from his land. O Lord, you will hear the desire of the meek. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice for the orphan and the oppressed, so that those from earth may strike terror no more. Amen. Now, the thing about the Psalms is they give us words to pray. And here Psalm 10 has given us some angry words to pray. But they also model a life lived in relationship with God. And one thing the Psalms model for us is how to get angry. This one begins in verse one. Hey, God, why are you so far away? Why are you nowhere to be seen in this situation of of oppression and injustice? And then in verse two, the oppressed begin to pour out their anger about their oppressors, who they are, how they think, and what they're doing. And as the psalm pours all this out in God's presence, you realize they're not just angry, they're almost at the point of giving up. In verse 11, the oppressed say to themselves as they suffer unjustly and lose out for others' illicit gain, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. This is just one of many radically honest and raw moments throughout that we find throughout the Psalms. Moments where God's people call him names, but they do it to his face. They do it in prayer. Like Alvin said last week, they go on speaking to God even when they feel abandoned by God. Verse 11 is also a pivot point in the people's anger in this Psalm. It narrates the very lowest point of their anger at injustice, because notice it's at this moment that they come closest, not just to suffering at the oppressor's hand, but to accepting the oppressor's vision of the way the world is. They say the kind of things that the oppressor says. God's not around. He's not interested. He doesn't see what's going on. He's not there. Given all they'd been through, If this psalm had ended with that verse, verse 11, I don't think any of us would have judged them too harshly. But it doesn't. Because while in verse 11, we hear that the weak fall by the might of the strong, in verse 12, we hear that God rises to give his strength to the weak. And from then on, the psalm takes a turn. It speaks not about the oppressors, but about God about who he is, about how he thinks, and about what he is going to do. So this psalm finds hope in the midst of the anger, hope that perceives, 
hope that endures and hope that responds. By the end of Psalm 10, it's like there are these two worlds colliding. There's the reality of the people's situation and there's the reality of the people's God. And you know, this is a collision that we also experience often today, particularly when we're angry at injustice. We look at the reality of God and we say, God, if this is who you are, then why is the world the way that it is? And we look at the reality of our situation and we say, God, all of this is going on and where on earth are you? And it's the faith of this people who are angry with God and with their situation that makes it all so pressing and, 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 and becomes so acute. It's because the God of the Bible holds these two colliding worlds together that it's so tough. God doesn't dismiss the reality of our situation. He never tells us that our feelings don't matter or that our anger at injustice doesn't matter or that we just need to rise above it all. But at the same time, our situation doesn't disprove the reality of God. He's there. After all, he stands with those who suffer. He identifies himself as their champion. And he promises that ultimately the whole world will be set to rights. So Psalm 10, like other Psalms, shows us that we can be angry, that we can and should be angry when we find that the world is not what it should be according to God. But it also shows us how to get angry. And I want to touch on three things in particular. This psalm invites us to put our anger into words, to put our anger into perspective, and to put our anger into God's hands. That's how to get angry, according to this psalm. So let's take each one in turn. First then, put your anger into words. Now, I grew up in the south of England, just outside a town called Tunbridge Wells. And if you've ever been there, you might just know that Tunbridge Wells is most famous for a series of anonymous angry letters of complaint that were published in newspapers in the 1950s and 60s. These letters were always signed off at the end, disgusted of Tunbridge Wells. And they complained about littering. They complained about graffiti. They complained about juveniles, because that's what they were called back then in the 50s and 60s. They complained about the ever-growing forest of TV aerials lining the rooftops and about people neglecting to remove their hats during the national anthem. Was it one person writing these letters or was it many? We'll never know. But disgusted of Tunbridge Wells became a national sensation. Maybe there's a Malaysian equivalent, I don't know. It became the standard anonymous sign-off for a generation of grumpy but pleasingly sarcastic letter writers in the news. In fact, a few years ago, the town tried to change its image by starting a Delighted of Tunbridge Wells campaign. But the merchandise didn't sell and there were anonymous complaints about it in the local paper. Now, of course, this is just a silly example about a grumpy uncle or two, but it's also a reminder that finding a voice, gaining a hearing is a powerful thing. And that's precisely what the Psalms show us how to do. About one third of the Psalms are laments. They cry out to God in anger and in pain. Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord. 
Listen to the sound of my crying. Psalm 6, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. And here in Psalm 10, why do you hide yourself, God? Why do you stand far off? All of that's just in the first 10 Psalms. Imagine what's in the rest, disgusted of Jacob's well. And so again, the Psalms don't tell us that we won't get angry or that we shouldn't get angry. Instead, the Psalms show us how to get angry, where to take our anger. Now, of course, anger can also be something sinful that God wants to deal with in our lives. Some of us particularly struggle with anger and we need help with it. There's that background kind of anger, fueled by all the frustrations and burdens of daily life, and it gets stirred up every now and again and then spills over onto the people around us. And there are those conflicts and disagreements with other people that lead us to reject not just what somebody has done, but the person who has done it. We come to bear a grudge. We break relationship. Jesus is radical about addressing this kind of anger. In Matthew 5, when Jesus teaches about anger, he tells this crazy story about a man who travels all the way to Jerusalem to present his gift at the altar of the temple. But as he's finishing this long journey, which probably took days, he begins to be nudged. He becomes aware of a conflict with a neighbor back at home. Sometimes long journeys provide those penny drop moments, don't they? So what does Jesus say that this guy should do? Well, he says that he should leave his gift right there on the altar, even though he's, he's made it already. He should turn around. He should go all the way back, possibly days and days of journeying back to his neighbor's door to settle things first before turning around and going all the way back to Jerusalem again. Jesus responds radically to sin and radically to anger. But part of how God calls us to respond is to voice it, not to suppress it, but to take the time to put it into words. And that's why in Psalm 10, two things happen. On the one hand, the oppressed, those who've been without a voice, who've been dominated, are finally allowed to speak and they don't mince words. They say the wicked persecute the weak. They are greedy for gain. They are both violent and manipulative in getting what they want and they boast, and they deceive, and they lurk, and they even deny God, and yet their ways appear to prosper. And then on the other hand, you have the oppressor, the one whose voice is normally dominating the narrative, controlling the conversation. But here, they are narrated, speaking the truths that they don't want to reveal. God will not seek it out, they say. There is no God. We shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, we shall not meet adversity. You, God, will not call us to account. So already in this act of prayerfully putting the anger and injustice into words, something vital is taking place. A voice and a hearing has been found. In prayer, in conversation with trusted others, we can tell our story and talk about our feelings to God and to other people. You know, finding that voice is not always automatic. We may have been silenced before, or we may have internalized 
a cultural assumption that this is not the done thing. The Singaporean theologian Maggie Lowe has written a great book called God, I'm Angry. She's not blaspheming in the title, by the way. There's a comma after the word God. And she writes about the way in which certain cultures and certain individuals in those cultures have been taught not to express feelings, especially not to God. She tells one particular story about talking to a man who was visibly shaken and angry at an injustice he had experienced. And yet, when they began to pray together, immediately the person shifted gears and spoke only of forgiveness. At which point, she had to stop him and tell tell him that while that was good, he really needed to find a voice and to tell God how he really felt. For the sake of moving forwards, this man needed to learn how to be angry. So that's the first thing, put your anger into words. The second is to put it into perspective. That's also what Psalm 10 does in the second part. The heart of the problem with the oppressor, remember, in the first part is that the oppressor says, there is no God. This is not necessarily the theoretical denial of God's existence. This is what people sometimes call practical atheism. When we oppress others, whether or not we believe in God, we live as though God were not part of the picture. Of course, some oppressors don't believe in God, but the point is even those who do believe in theory disbelieve in action. They are practical atheists. And that's something that should give us all pause in the way that we live our own lives. And it points to the nature of the oppressor's perspective. Now, what is the perspective we need to step into? The perspective we we discover here is bringing God back into the picture. One of the striking things about this psalm is that the oppressor constantly uses the most generic word in Hebrew for God. But the oppressed use the name of God, Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant name of God. Our anger, the injustice we experience, is put into perspective when we encounter the Lord in the midst of it. We hear that the Lord, Yahweh, sees us and that he cares, that he hears our desires and has inclined his ear, that he strengthens hearts and that he also strengthens the weakness of the oppressed and weakens the strength of the oppressor. He brings justice. And it's important that we're clear about what this is, this justice, this perspective, and what it isn't. While putting our anger in perspective is proactive and pursuing justice is proactive, there's also an element here, I think, of what people sometimes call letting go and letting God. Because it's the promise that the justice that is currently being denied to us ultimately belongs not to us, but to God. Not in the sense then that we finally have someone in our corner who's big and strong enough to teach these guys a lesson, but in the sense that we can trust this God who is perfectly just to balance the scales and to set all things right. That's a perspective that can be deeply cathartic for the anger and the helplessness we so often feel. 
We hear about it again and again in the New Testament as well. Hebrews 10, Romans 12, justice belongs to him. He is just, so we can trust. But more than that, the justice of God in the Bible, in the New Testament, has a name and a face, Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus comes for the forgiveness of the sins of all, but he also comes from God for the sake of the oppressed. At the start of Jesus's ministry, he quotes from Isaiah 61, he, God, has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, while our anger at injustice on its own often seeks retribution, the justice of Jesus that we hear about here is one that brings restoration. It's not only the righting of individual wrongs or the straightening out of injustices. It's something more than that as well. And this Jesus perspective makes the justice that we seek bigger rather than smaller. It doesn't deny us, but it expands the horizon. In his book, Reading While Black, the African-American pastor and theologian Esau McCauley has a chapter called, What Shall We Do With This Rage? And reflecting on the experience of the black churches in the US, Macaulay writes, traumatized communities must be able to tell the truth about what they feel. They need to put it into words, but then they also need to put it into perspective. And in that context, he points to hope in the justice of God, absolutely. But then thirdly, he reminds his readers that the Bible places injustice and anger in this even broader perspective. Macaulay writes that the miracle of the scriptures is not that there are calls to repay our enemies to the full. That's the stuff of human existence. Rather, the miracle is that the scriptures imagine something beyond vengeance. That's the Jesus perspective. There is something beyond vengeance. When we place our anger in God's perspective, we can dare in faith to imagine a world beyond injustice and beyond vengeance as God intended and designed it to be. And we can begin to live now in light of that hope in a way that fosters in us that love to which Christ calls us, even for our enemies, even for those who persecute us. Psalm 83 is another angry psalm, but it puts this all together in a striking way at its conclusion when it says, fill their faces with humiliation so that they may seek your name, O Lord. May they be put to shame so that they may know that you are most high over all the earth. That's the second point. Put your anger into perspective, into God's perspective. And that brings us to the last point in this Psalm's guidance into how to be angry. As we've put our anger into words, and as we've put our anger into perspective, this is what we hear about God. You do see, says Psalm 10. Indeed, you note trouble and grief that you may take it into your hands. The helpless commit themselves to you and you have been the helper 
of the orphan. That's our final point. Put your anger into the hands of the Lord. As we place our anger, as we place injustice and suffering into the hands of God, we also are committing ourselves to the one who is the helper of the orphan and the God of the oppressed. When we commit ourselves to him, we also commit to be like him in the way in which we live. And we find that as we follow this God, we will grow in compassion. We'll be able to connect in a new way with the anger and the injustice of others, as well as the anger and injustice that we felt. In God's presence, we will even begin to voice the anger and the injustice, not just of the things that oppose us or the things that we oppose, but that which God opposes. And so we begin to move outwards and to give our voice to the voiceless and to speak and respond on their behalf. At first, as we do this, perhaps what strikes us is shock at how numbed and desensitized to the world's injustices we can often feel. You know, the internet makes it possible to know what is going on all around the world all of the time, but that often creates what people call now injustice fatigue. And it's when we find that fatigue within ourselves that we begin to pray, as Bob Pierce prayed, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. We sing it, don't we? Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom cause. After all, Jesus tells another story in Luke 18 about a widow who pleads before an unjust judge, grant me justice against my adversary. It's a story about persistence in prayer, but it's also a story about sustaining anger at injustice. And when we hear that he told it to show them that they should always pray and not give up, that is surely part of his purpose. Risky though it sounds, I wonder whether this psalm might teach us to be angry in this way too. Teach us how to be angry. Because one definition says, anger is a passion that moves the will to justice. When two worlds collide, when we hold God's good order up against the disorder of creation, then we don't so much burn with sinful anger as engage with God's holy anger. And the striking thing is that perhaps God would rather have us getting angry as part of our growth in Christ-likeness, angry at the disorder of his world and the suffering of his people, than let us go on being calm but numb. Shall we pray together? And as we pray now, you might like to just place your hands like this in a posture of openness. And having heard the word of God today, we now pray, come Holy Spirit. Come now, touch our minds and rest upon our hearts.
for some of us hearing this, the challenge is to put into words the anger that we feel. Maybe we've suppressed it, we've sat on it, we've denied ourselves the opportunity to speak it out. And maybe because we felt like that was the Christian thing to do, but God calls us to come brutally honest before him. Or maybe there's some particular anger or injustice that you're carrying, you're bearing in this season. And your challenge today is to put it into perspective, to hear the words of comfort about who God is, of what he does to restore us and to restore the whole of creation so that you can live with new hope. Or maybe for some of us, it's Bob Pierce's prayer. Break my heart, Lord, for the things that break yours. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to kindle compassion and even holy anger against the injustice and suffering of a world that so needs Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's worship together. Da, 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 da.